The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. I'm excited today to introduce you to Steve Koenig and particularly excited because he has a name that's spelled like mine and pronounced similarly. <laughs> so good morning, Steve. Good morning, Francie. How are you? I'm great. So your name is spelled K-O-E-N-I-G yes. and it's yes. pronounced Koenig. Mine's spelled K-O-E-H-L-E-R and it's pronounced Kaler. So right. there you go. My tribe came from Austria. I don't know where yours came from, but that's how we pronounce it, I guess, back yeah, there. I guess. Whatever. So <laughs> anyway, and um, to our listeners, we are going to talk about the art of surveillance with Steve today. Everybody knows private investigators conduct surveillance, and most people um, wonder about it, actually. So that's why Steve's here to talk about it. It's certainly one of the functions that PIs are hired to do. It's really difficult, it's really tedious, and sometimes it's just absolutely boring. Right, Steve? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. But um, anyway, before we get into all that, um, I know people want to hear where you came from and how you got in this business, and so tell us about you. Well, I will, uh, but again, thanks for having me, you know, on your your wonderful show, and I, you know, I just want to, you know, thank, thank you for, on behalf of our profession, you know, you have done a great Aww. service for our profession, and I, I really appreciate it. I'm sure it takes a lot of work and dedication to do this, so I really appreciate it. And I often, sitting on surveillance, have listened to your shows. So <laughs> Thanks, thank Steve. you for helping keeping me awake. Well, it's great <laughs> guests like you, Steve, that uh, make the show viable. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that. Well, you know, how I got into business. Well, um, to tell you the truth, I lied a little. Uh-oh. Um, Kind of, um, let me first say, you know, I, I I grew up on a Nebraska farm, you know, far from any private investigators or people who who did such work. Um, my grandfather um, had been in the second state patrol class in Nebraska, and he was in law enforcement. And on uh, my father's side, he had a cousin who was a state trooper. But but my family was mostly uh, farmers and teachers and nuns. And so, uh, <laughs> of course, growing up, I read the Hardy Boys books and loved them, of course. But that was just fiction. But, uh, you know, one day my grandparents had come to visit and brought some obscure newspaper with them. And in it I saw a review of the, uh, of the uh, a biography of the review of, review of the biography of J.J. Arms, you know, the noted pre I from right. El Paso. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I was all of 12 years old. And I was such a nerd. Um, <laughs> I wrote Mr. Arms a couple of letters noting my interest 
and inquiring about the correspondence class he offered, and he responded very kindly and respectfully. And I must say, I always remember that when I'm asked by younger people about my profession, you know, to be to be honest with them and to be and to be uh, to take the time to talk to them about it. Um, That's pretty cool. So it, it was. It was Really cool for a kid out watch, walking in the cow pens, reading my <laughs> letter from JJR when I was 12 years old. But, you know, then I think everybody somewhere along the line got a copy of that private detective manual from Universal Detectives. And <laughs> everybody so, I knew ever, I bet they sold a million copies. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I kind of always thought I'd end up being a farmer. Um, you know, when I went off to college, uh, studying agriculture, the very first week I was there, I went down to the big university library, and I found the section where there was books on private investigators, including Mr. Really? Arms' book. Wow. And so I, uh, I would secretly go down there and read it because, uh, you know, I, I never checked any of these books out because I didn't want my friends to see what I was doing, and I'm sure they would have made brutal fun of me oh, yeah. had they seen me read. <laughs> so do you, still, do you still have the letter, Steve? Do you still have the letter I, from Arms? I, I wish I still had the letter from, uh, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think I do, but uh, some, I, I wish I did, and, and maybe it is somewhere in my, in my, in my pile of things. Yeah. But uh, while attending college, I, I, you know, I looked up the name of a, a local private investigator who was in our town, and uh, so here's the part where the Chinatown movie quote comes in uh, to tell you <laughs> the truth. I lied a little. Um, okay. So I called this private investigator up and told him I was doing a paper for a college class on what it was like to be a private investigator, and this, of course, was a lie. Um, he let me come and visit with him, and I was very nervous. And, of course, in a way, it was actually my first case as I was using a pretext to gather some information. Uh, but uh, he was very nice and, and took his time with me and, and listened to me. And, uh, you know, when I graduated from college, I, you know, I sat down and uh, wrote him a letter. And, uh, I don't, you know, I'm an actual letter and, and asked to come work for him. And he was very much a lone wolf and still is today. But I kept badgering him, and he finally let me do some part-time work. And then I, actually, my first case was a surveillance on an insurance claimant. And I'm, you know, I uh, sitting mm. in my Cougar, my 1979 Cougar, watching this house <laughs> with my this crappy little Beta Cam I had that kind of worked. And uh, you know, I didn't get too much video at first, but uh, and probably what I did get was not very good. But uh, one night I found this gentleman's car parked at the bowling alley and I ran back and got my my got the camera and I ran in there and and I and I ended up getting some really good video on him and you know this is 1988 and and you know there's no video cameras around let alone cell phone cameras or anything like that but I was able mm -hmm. to get some good video and it worked out well and that was kind of my first case so so um, was, and was that a workers comp kind that of was a, a workers comp case okay. and uh and uh, I've had several bowlers since then, but it was it was a great introduction, and of course, certainly got me a little excited about about the job. You must and, have been just walking on clouds. Oh, and... I was I was I had <laughs> shot video with this crappy little beta cam, and it hadn't come out very good, and so I was just praying that that video <laughs> would come out, and it did. And you know, of course, I thought I was you know James Bond, you know the <laughs> second. So, and. Uh, so after college, I, I uh, 
after I kind of did some work for him, after college was over, I went to work for, I saw an ad for a bigger firm out of Lincoln and Omaha, and I went to work for them for about three years and got a lot of experience doing surveillance and working other interview-type cases as well. Then I, you know, had a kind of an interest to move to Colorado, so I moved there to the front range of Colorado and uh, opened up my well, own agency. Where were and, you in Colorado, uh, Steve? I was in the Fort Collins, Loveland area, just oh, about really? an hour north of Denver. Yeah, I and, lived in Fort uh, Collins. <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, it's a great place to live. I loved it out there. It was, of course, when everybody was moving out there at the time, and and uh, and I was mostly doing, you know, survey. And I and I got some clients in. It took a little while, but I got some work in, and uh, and mostly on insurance cases again. And uh, so I had that for about seven years. Had investigators that worked for me, and and I also, you know, I met some some other great private investigators out of Colorado at the time. I was part of the the uh, Professional Private Investigators Association of Colorado, and uh, I was president and there one year. You were president then, there, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and uh, you know, I met Ellis Armistead and Eugene Ferraro, and yeah. um, you know all those guys. And, I and know Ed all those guys. Absolutely, yeah. and Ed O'Connor was a really good criminal defense investigator out there at the time, and Stan Miller was kind of a retired FBI guy who had a lot of who I had a lot of respect for, and uh, Dean Beers was getting started out there, yeah. and, and you know, met those guys, and so it was really, really, really cool, man. I just, I just, I really liked it, and, and so, but we kind of wanted to move back to Nebraska. My two daughters were born out there, and we kind of wanted to come back home to Nebraska, and, uh, and so I came back, and I had sold my agency to, to one of my employees at the time named Ken Mitchell, who's still my, one of my best friends today. And I, uh, we returned home, and I, I landed a job with the Special Investigating Unit of an insurance company. Um, and I worked there for five years until the company there kind of sold off. And that was very interesting work and very educational. Well, and that would be, that, what a great uh, foundation for the work you do. Right, exactly. And uh, I did, uh, you know, uh, and I had a great boss there, Lynn Ford, who, who was... Uh, really a, a good teacher and and i you know it was you know we did work you know um nationwide you know it was property and casualty and uh so we had cases and a lot of it was desk type investigations but i also did field stuff for them they had a uh they believe it or not they had a crop insurance subsidiary and where mm-hmm. the through the government it was kind of through the government it's uh um so it was these company would uh, they had a company that was who wrote this policy, which is basically government underwritten. But uh, we—that uh, was the most um, difficult, challenging cases I probably ever worked. And we insured. What kind of cases would you do? Well, with a they crop would, we would insure through the through the through this crop insurance program. You had all kinds of crops throughout the nation, and I worked on on cases involving, you know, whether it be corn in Nebraska or wheat in Montana or tomatoes in in Louisiana or rice in Arkansas. Um, he worked on all kinds of things. Where, and there was a lot of, and they, they, you would have pockets of fraud that was being committed where they were abusing the program in, in, in certain uh, certain areas. And, so give us uh, an example, Steve. What would be well, something like that? Let me let me think here. So a lot of times, it's so here's where it was just very complicated, because people would set their you know every year they would go to the the local farm service agency and and set up their their crops what they were going to grow for that year, and uh, p- 
people would get insurance based on prior, you know, um, harvest numbers and stuff like that for each of these units that they would have planted. Well, at times, people would shift production to show a loss on a certain unit. So they mm. might shift production to another field or something like that. But there was also all these, and so, I mean, we had, it was happening in Rice in Arkansas. It was happening in, I had, like I said, cases with tomatoes. I had cases with sugar beets. <laughs> I had, you know, and other, you know, and then the other investigators I worked with, I mean, we covered, you know, there was apples in Washington, whatever. And, but people would either hide production to show that they had a loss, so they mm-hmm. would basically hide sometimes their production. And there's also uh, another part of it that we had. They had to do, sometimes some farmers did not do the appropriate farming practices. Mm-hmm. They had to, you had to take care of things. You, ha- you couldn't just claim a loss. You, know, you had to show that you took care of your crop and whatever. You had to water your plants, right? You had to water. <laughs> and I had many cases where guys just yeah. didn't water their corn or something like that. And we had to go sh- then track down to find out, did they do those appropriate farming practices? And I was a farm kid, so I, I had some of that experience, and so I used uh, some of that. But it was, it was very interesting, but very, very challenging. And we worked closely with USDA investigators on many of these cases. And so it was interesting to work with them. And sometimes, I mean, alongside, we would go alongside them and, and, and work cases. So, but again, it was just extremely challenging, but very interesting very interesting work. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. I never thought about that. I, I'm a farm kid as well. Right. And I, I do remember uh, that my dad would go get loans against whatever the future crop was going to be based on the history of that particular crop or that piece of land or, or whatever. Right. So, right. yeah, it's, it's a whole different world than uh, the majority of people even know about. Absolutely, and culturally, you each in each area of the country, kind of culturally, the farmers were a little different. But you kind of had to understand the culture of the farmers you were dealing with, and and yep. the people, and and uh, but just because they are farmers doesn't mean they're just honest, hardworking people. You know, yeah. the first thing you learn when you're in insurance investigation school is every program is going to have a certain percentage of fraud. Yeah, and. Yep. Uh, and a lot of people didn't want to think that was the case with with farmers, but absolutely it was the case. And some, most were honest, most were whatever. But there were a certain percentage that were crooks, just like anything else. Yeah, interesting, fascinating. Never thought about that before. Okay, so then what did you do? So you know, I worked for this company for five years, and then they kind of sold off to the Four Winds. So I I had I decided to go back on my own. Um, again, working trying to get clients in. It kind of, you know, it's kind of tough because it was really hard to kind of start start up again, but I decided to go back on my own, and I you know, started gradually getting my clients all built back up. And uh, and uh, so and since that time, that's kind of what it's been, you know. I, uh, I uh, except for a short time, so since, that, so since that time, I've pretty much been on my own. I did for a, a year or two work for a national surveillance vendor who was actually part of a third party administrator who was one of my clients and so I went to work for them and traveled around doing mm. uh, surveillance for them and it was interesting again to work for them because it was a national vendor and I had never quite seen it on that scale but it was you know I learned a couple things but then uh, you know it's it's I decided to end up to go back on my own again and that's pretty much where I'm at right now about 80% of the work I do is uh 
insurance surveillance type work, and then about 20% is I do some murder defense and some criminal defense work as well, and and that kind of gives me a break from it a little bit too and keeps my interviewing skills. uh, Yeah, well, that's great. And how long have you been back in Nebraska? So I've been back in Nebraska. So after I moved, so my thing in Colorado, my business in Colorado, I moved back in, and so that was 19... Okay, now you're going to ask me to go back. <laughs> you know, so about 15 years, or okay. not even that, yeah, 12 years ago or so that I returned back to Nebraska in 1998. And so I guess that's longer than that now. And so I've uh, been back there, and it's, and uh, and uh, I kind of live in uh, the central part of Nebraska, but I, I uh, of course, I work. You know, whenever you're in the surveillance business, you've got to be prepared to travel to some to some degree and especially you know when you work for like a national vendor i was kind of centrally located to go to you know colorado or kansas or south dakota or wherever you got to go and i've probably done overall i've probably done surveillance work in probably 15 different states of course the other work has taken me beyond that but uh um yeah. you know i'm still today i still um talk weekly with a guy who I first did a work for. His name is Herb Compton, who's been a long-time investigator, and uh, thankful for that opportunity he gave me back then. And and I also learned a great deal working for uh, Tom Gorgon out of Omaha, who long-time private investigator, I mean, back to the 60s, um, who tells some great stories how things were back then before the, you know, when they would mostly marital cases instead of work comp cases back in the 60s. And and he's, well, and he's been a he's been a great uh, help to me and uh, and uh, but I still hope to get to meet JJ Arms. Yeah, one there day. you go. And, well, you uh, know, you you bring up a great point, Steve, because this is a this is a business where mentoring is important, and those of us that have been mentored really appreciate that. And uh, I just want to say, put that out there you know, to private investigators that may be listening to the show, take somebody under your wing and mentor them because there isn't anything more rewarding from the mentoring viewpoint and and people get the right kind of training and a, and a hand up. So it's pretty cool. Pass Absolutely. it forward. And I, and I think you, you guys in, color, in California have done that, haven't you? Like through your association, do you guys do some mentoring? We things? try, yeah. We sure do. We try to do that. Yeah. Yeah, we uh, we don't have a big of association here, but I, I think it's absolutely important and uh, and to uh, and it, it, you know, like I said, I'm still working with the guy I worked with, you know, when I first started yeah. 27 years ago or whatever. And well, so, and yeah, we need to take a break, Steve. But let me just say that then you you founded the Nebraska Association of Licensed Investigators, and you were there. I guess you were the first president. Is that right? Yes, I, I, they had an association at one time, and then it kind of faded away. And when I came back, of course, I'd been on the, the, the Colorado Association, and so I kind of got it started here again. So yeah. we've got about 30 members, and it's, That's really, great. it's really good. That's great. Okay, more to come from private investigator Steve Koenig. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. 
It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. He just joined the show. Private investigator Steve Koenig is discuss, going to be discussing surveillance and tell us what the real world of surveillance is all about. So, Steve, take it from there. Let's talk about well, surveillance. Absolutely. And, of course, you call me because I wrote this little article for Pursuit magazine, uh, mm-hmm. Surveillance, How It Really Is. And, you know, I'm certainly grateful to Kim Green and Hal Humphreys for publishing my article and, uh, and giving me some ideas for it. And they, uh, they do a wonderful job there. And... Uh, really nice people and you know um so, you know surveillance and i believe the article that i wrote um, kind of resonated especially with those investigators who have done surveillance right because exactly. uh, you know surveillance brings with it a lot i mean the movies show one thing but for people who have done it it brings with it a lot of good and sometimes very bad memories um you know many leave their careers as surveillance investigators and quite gladly never return mm-hmm. um but surveillance, when done, when done correctly, you know, is a sincere test of a person's uh, will and wits. And, you know, with it come great exhilaration when things go well and fear and uncertainty when things don't go so well. Um, but also it brings with it, and one of the things I didn't really mention in the article is paranoia and, uh, of course, exhaustion and isolation. And there's just all these pressures that you feel, of course, from bosses and such, but... Uh, it's these, it's, it brings with it a lot of kind of because you're just kind of on this island by yourself, and here here in America, most of the surveillances we do for attorneys or for insurance companies, we're mostly by ourselves. I mean, people do do teams and more, uh, uh, you know, technical type surveillance where they've got a group of people. But usually, most of the stuff, it's you're just kind of by yourself, and and you can look great or you can just look like an idiot, and uh, mm-hmm. no. Francie, the the one thing I would say that really, you know, doesn't probably get talked about that much is, um, you know, surveillance investigators for insurance companies or for attorneys who are doing child custody work. But, you know, especially the insurance company, they save insurance companies millions of dollars every year. And usually we, we have yeah. 
we have no idea even how much we save. But by sh- bringing that light uh, to that that uh, the people that are not being truthful, we uh, we we save them millions of dollars and really give them the information they need to to, to do their cases. So, um, um, well, it's a and very do you think? Important do, excuse me, Steve. Do you skill. think that the general public? When uh, when you say you do surveillance, that they think it's a cheater's thing and going after uh, you know errant spouses is that what people usually think, or do they right. usually think that you're doing uh, fraud kinds of surveillance? Right. Well, they, probably you know the TV has showed most, but most are thinking when you're a PI, oh, you're having some spouse issue, which mm-hmm. of course with no fault divorces, right. it's really not. You don't need surveillance proof. Um, but you, in child custody cases, it's it's important. And I know there's kind of this okay creepy factor. You you follow people around, but um, you know, in reality, most of the guys you know are doing it all very legally. You know, uh, you you basically you know there's things you don't do on surveillance, but you just really want to just have a day in the life of that person, whether it's they are hurt or not. We have no yeah. control over that. We're just trying to show what they what their range of movement, what their activity is, what their range of movement is. Are they really what they're telling the doctor? Is that is that the truth? Yeah. And let's, so let's, um, let's talk about ahead. that creepy factor yeah. for a minute, um, because you know there's a real reaction to privacy, uh, what people consider privacy violations. So how do you get around that? Well, I, I think you have to follow you have to follow some basic rules, and uh, and not everybody does, but, uh, you know, um, there's this thing, it's not so much what you do, it's the things you don't do. Um, you want to do, uh, on any type of surveillance, you want to do a, a good faith, honest type surveillance. And again, it's, uh, it's uh, people have, first of all, let me go, claimants or anybody has an expectation of privacy. Right. So the thing is, you don't want to go beyond that. You don't, I mean, you don't want to film inside their windows of their house or even even if they're behind a privacy fence lifting weights, you don't want to stick your camera over the fence and film them. People have an expectation of privacy when they're behind their privacy fence or in their house. Absolutely. And uh, so you basically are just left with what you can show they're doing during the course of the day, what you can see from the public street. And so that is the first thing you need to do. Um, and that's again, that's just a good faith investigation. Also, you mean don't you're not there to harass um, these people. Um, you do not trespass on their property, or really anybody else's property for that matter, to get video. Um, you don't follow people, um, maybe inside their attorney's office or something like that. <laughs> Places yeah. where they have an expectation of privacy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, even you're not even you do not even contact make any personal contact with a claimant who is represented by an attorney, which many of them, by the time we get on them, many of them are. Uh-huh. So you're not there to make any contact with them. An exception might be if they are, you know, they, a lot of people have side, not a lot, but a certain percentage will have side jobs when they're off on workers' comp, they're still working somewhere else and uh, making money that way too. And they might be working in a bar as a bartender or a restaurant as a waitress or whatever. And so you will go in there maybe and, you know, get video of them inside and that might lead to some incidental contact. But generally you do not make any, you do not contact the, the person you're watching. So yeah, it really so what, goes back to those things that you, what you do not do. 
so what you're talking about is somebody that is on a has a workers comp claim they're off work because they're injured and now they've gone to work for somebody else and they're making an income from someone else plus drawing the workers comp money absolutely that- absolutely okay and uh, or they may have a side business um, I've had people who always seem to come up hurt the time of year when it's time to plant corn. Oh, there you go. So they end up with two weeks off, but they you go there and they work in a factory, but they got to get their corn planted. So they, they kind of come up lame during that time of the year. So you're, you're out there, you know, filming them planting corn or, or something like that. Or they say they can't work but they during a certain time, but they're really you know, selling snow cones at the state fair. Um, well, I, like and that. I think you have to, I mean, I think we all have to keep in mind that these people are suspected of a crime. They're suspected of fraud. This isn't like just like, oh, I think I'll go out and follow Steve for a day and see what Steve's doing wrong. They right. think that he's committing, they think Steve is committing fraud. Right. Many times um, this, is, this investigation is predicated on some information maybe they got through their employer, through the insurance company, through the doctor, through something like that. They go, this thing just isn't adding up. And so we would like you to go see because, um, you know, it's just for, for whatever reason. We, a lot of times they'll say that somebody works for a factory and they'll say, well, we hear this guy is, is uh, out, you know, uh, riding bron- bucking Broncos on, at the rodeo on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so really, you know, he's working light duty now and he says he can't do whatever but he can do that. So you go out there filming, you know, riding bucking Broncos or driving demolition derby cars or, or whatever they're, they're doing. Have you actually gotten a workers' comp claimant uh, on a bucking Bronco? I actually had a jockey. And wow. I had a, I had a guy who was riding horses at a racetrack and a jockey, and he won several races the day I watched him. So that was kind of fun. That, yeah, that would give you a, a real high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so how do you work an insurance surveillance case? Um, well, it's just, you know, just like, as you well know, on any case, you, you want to get as much uh, background um, information from the client. And it's very important before you, you know, before you even start. And, you know, you want to, you know, know their name, of course, and where their last known address. The date of injury is very important. Are they represented by an attorney? What are their physical restrictions? You know, are there any rumors about activities that they are involved in away from work? And so, and then when you're doing that, you know, you research all their registered vehicles. Are they got motorcycles or boats to show us any of that type of activity? Hopefully, maybe you get a chance to get a photo ID card. Not always. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then you kind of want to research um, all their civil, criminal, and traffic-type courts records to kind of get an idea for the, get a snapshot of what their, their life might be like, and certainly the social networking sites as well. And then, uh, you know, look at, you know, of course, and this is all stuff, as you well know, we did not have <laughs> yeah. years ago access right. to, and long with satellite maps to kind of get an idea of the neighborhood and, and things like that. Okay. So that's the first, that's the first thing you want to do. Um, and you kind of put it, some of that stuff you want to, I guess it's kind of from my SIU background, that's why I kind of look at it probably more so, but uh, that date of injury, you kind of want to compare that to some of that, that information you, you gain. You know, was because there might be vehicle accidents, they might have been involved in assault cases, or where they may have been injured somewhere else, you know, because mm-hmm. um, sometimes people get hurt somewhere else, but they, they go to work and say it happened there. And uh, you'll also find out, say, like uh, I've had uh, 
several, I mean, not a lot, but several cases where guys are, uh, or gals are, uh, have their CDL truck license. And so they are, they're off work, but you, you find out they have a CDL truck driving infraction on their, on their, which happened after their injury. So mm. you find out who, what truck that was. Oh yeah, they were driving truck for so-and-so during that time. So they were making money and driving truck and, and doing stuff like that. Interesting. And also things like hunting and fishing permits and, uh, things like that. So you, you want that snapshot of what they are before you even, before you even start. And then certainly, you know, your surveillance vehicle, you know, prepped all there with a full tank of gas and clean windows and the things you need. And, uh, and all your, your 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 camera equipment and kind of a big believer in, in redundant or backup systems for cameras and batteries and and right. so you're ready to go when you go if the camera goes down you got a backup and uh, and then like again you need to be prepared to take you know good notes I mean I know a lot of guys use recorders I still use a notepad um, report day right you know so I can write all this stuff down and I can refer to it during the course of my case um, if I if I need to. Because so you're, you're living it, you're li- you get started. You're living in your vehicle, literally, for the period of time, whatever this you, takes. You, you absolutely are. You are living in that vehicle. That is your, that is your little cocoon. That is your, that is what you, where you live your day, day in and day out. Absolutely. And uh, you can't get out. <laughs> well, generally. Um, okay. Which means we all there have has our to be- limits. But, but generally, <laughs> yeah, you are be, you're, uh, some kind of bathroom you, facilities of some right. Time. Have a, you know, for us guys, we have a Gatorade bottle and uh, things like that. And so, these are all things that are never on you know Magnum PI or anything like that. Um, but you have to be able to, you know, you can't be pulling on and off surveillance a lot. You have to be sitting because as soon as you do, of course, the person leaves. That's and, <laughs> exactly yeah. exactly. And so. And, you know, what she said about, uh, I, I mean, we've all heard horror stories about somebody out on a job and um, the batteries are dead or <laughs> oh, <laughs> the aren't charged. And, I know, and I know. And that's why, you know, those, yeah, those redundant backup systems. So you have several batteries and a backup video camera. And and uh, and so because I've, I've had it happen, I've had a camera, just video camera, right in the middle of filming a guy at a, He's working in a rodeo or something, and also my camera just went out, and it's like, oh my god, thank god I had a backup, you know. And so that stuff happens. So you gotta gotta be a boy scout or a girl scout and and be prepared. Be prepared. Okay, so you you've got all your equipment, your cars clean, you've got a full tank of gas, you've got food, you've got your Gatorade bottle, Mm -hmm. uh, all of that kind of stuff. Now, then, what do you do? Well, in a in a like. So say fixed surveillance type situation, which is kind of where you start. You know, learning to learning where to set up is kind of crucial. And uh, you know, you just can't pull up in front of the the, the person's house and sit there across the street and watch them. Um, what I do, and what people kind of generally do, and even though you're not really thinking about it, you're kind of doing it because I've been doing it for so long. You kind of look for the best, maybe one to three spots where you can where activity can be served, mm-hmm. can be can be monitored, and hopefully it's a spot where you can. You know, get video, whatever, but you don't necessarily start out at your the best spots per se. Um, you know, nowadays uh, claimants are, you know, they're they're kind of educated by their attorneys to be on the lookout for people like me, mm-hmm. and so we have to be not too obvious about things. And so, 
and even such, even, I even say I kind of tend to sit off a little bit when I start. I mean, I hope I can still see the vehicle and stuff, but I just I do not want to take any chance to kind of get in the flow of the case. And a lot about surveillance is kind of just getting in the flow of it, getting in the rhythm of following this person, what their movements are. And uh, and so I'll kind of tend to sit off a little bit away. But uh, so, and maybe there is only one spot. Maybe there is just... You know, you work in small towns or places. You go, okay. If if this guy comes out and does something, that's the spot I'm about. I'm only going to have to watch him. So, but I can't sit there at the start because then he's going to know I'm there. So it's not really worth the risk until I know it's he's out there mowing the lawn or or doing something. Right. So you kind of you kind of you kind of find the spots to sit. You know, and there's just kind of rules. You know, kind of rules to that. Um, uh, as far as where you set up. You know, there's no absolute rules because this is an art, not a science. But um, generally, you know, you don't park in front of their house. You maybe you sp- maybe you'll park down the street, say a block or two, whatever. But you might split the difference between two houses. People are mm-hmm. very territorial, so you kind of keep that in mind when you park. Um, you know, you could be nice if you could be in a parking lot or near a, a house that's up for sale or vacant, or maybe a multifamily residence. Um, of mm-hmm. course, these are better places to set up because then you won't stand out as much. But otherwise, you're looking, if it's a single-family residence neighborhood, you're kind of looking to sit on the side of a house. or, or But hopefully, we're still where you can see the activity in the front or whatever. But you got to be kind of careful, kind of careful and, where you set up. And don't you have to have a cover story just in case somebody questions you about why you're there? Yeah, it's always good to have that in mind. Now, um, generally, here, here's the deal. I think that, and I, and I sit in the back of a vehicle with curtains closed and whatever, so I'm not usually confronted mm-hmm. because I can hide out pretty good. That being said, um, you know, you, you should have some type of story as to why you're there. Or, I'm, you know, I'm on a repossession, I'm looking for a vehicle that, you know, Mm-hmm. That's you know show up at this house or something like that. And you never you know of course tell them that you're watching the person you are watching. And really the idea is if you do your job correctly, you'll never have to use it. But you better have one. But that's more for people if you're you know a lot of guys still you know might say they're sitting in a vehicle where people can see them sitting in the vehicle, and uh, they better have a story because <laughs> they're going right. to get confronted and down in today's day and age somebody. And the neighborhood's going to say, well, we'll call the cops, or they're going to say, hey, what are, you, what are you doing here? But hopefully if you do your job right, you won't get confronted too often, and it won't, and it won't be an issue. The worst part would be if they think you're a child molester. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, they think, well, nowadays, I mean, and I've had, God, I had a case here recently, and it was in a trailer park. It was very challenging. But the guy kind of lived near where the main bank of post mailboxes were and where the laundry facility was. And so I'm parked kind of there, so it was kind of a good place to park, and I could I was very close to his residence. I mean, extremely close. But I was able to park there because other people would park there. But that was also the place where the the school bus unloaded and picked oh, up great. kids. <laughs> so I would have every morning, and then in the afternoon I would have like 30 kids around my van, and I had balls bouncing off my van. And and but I'm sure you know because where I was parked, you know, I was if I would have been sitting in the front of my vehicle, that would have certainly, you know, made people kind of wonder. But I was in the back. I was, I mean, I had kids going through my, I was filming my guy and the kids were walking through the, you know, (laughs) where I was video, getting getting video of my guy working on his car. And 
and uh, but they're just leaning up against my van and and things like that. So yeah, you gotta gotta be careful in today's day. People are very they're very, very wary of, of yeah. strange guys sitting in vans. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, uh, Steve, we need to take another break. Don't go away. Steve Koenig will be okay. right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. With us, with us today is private investigator Steve Koenig, an expert in surveillance. Uh, Steve, t- let's talk about mobile surveillance a little bit. Okay, well, uh, yeah, mobile surveillance, surveillance is, you know, just like it, it sounds. You know, it's the following of your, your subject as they drive or walk, you know, throughout the course of the day. You know, I kind of think it's kind of like dancing the foxtrot with someone, but you cannot let them know you were dancing <laughs> with them. Oh, um, not sure that makes sense. No, it's it a great example, kind of, actually. still sounds kind of creepy, but, uh, um, yeah, you'll, so a lot of times, here's the challenge of it all. You know, you, the investigator will need to follow someone over the course of several days with the same vehicle, um, which then you're going to park near their, their residence. So certainly it is, a, it is a challenge that requires, you know, some skill and common sense and creativity, and on occasion a little bit of luck. Um, you know, you need to think and move quickly. Um, you know, sometimes you may need to follow people great distances, so you always need to be prepared. You know, and then, of course, safety is always paramount because no case is worth getting injured or injuring someone else. Um, then, you know, there's a military term I like, uh, move quick, quiet, and small. And, uh, and you also need to blend in. And, I mean, again, you need to make these snap decisions. When you're, so it's just kind of a skill you have to learn. 
and it, it kind of varies depending upon where you live and 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 the type of you know terrain you're you're working in. So, mm-hmm. but it is it is certainly a skill uh, you have to learn, and if you're going to be at all successful. How do you keep from being detected? Well, a lot of times you use blockers between vehicles. A lot of times, you know, you sit in the, the you know a different lane than not necessarily behind them. Um, you have to give a certain. Sometimes it's just you and them on a long stretch of road, and so you hang back. But you know, the, the one of the things that I really didn't cover in the article is paranoia, and uh, the novice investigator is always paranoid that the person um, knows that they're that they're watching them. Okay. And so it is something you have to kind of get hardened to. Because um, the novice always thinks, okay, they got to know I'm back here. And any yeah. look or point by the subject, the novice is, oh, my God, he knows I'm here. Usually people don't. And yeah. so you have to, but you cannot, you, you just can't ride on the bumper for, you know, five yeah. minutes and expect to get away with it. But you have to use a lot of common sense, a lot of creativity, and uh, and it just it, it's just a skill that takes some time. And you, you they will have things go wrong, um, and sometimes you have to show restraint. You know, I, it's one thing you can't really teach young investigators because then they'll always be bailing on it. But sometimes you just have to go. Okay, I just got to get off this case. I just I can't follow this person anymore. I've been pushing it way too hard. I've still got two days of surveillance. I, I can't. Mm-hmm. I can't follow this guy, or can't follow him into a certain dead end neighborhood or cul-de-sac or you know thing like that right. i've got to i've got to stay clear and so restraint is kind of a thing you learn you have to learn as, as well um but it is it is something you have to it's again part of the skill that you have to learn and and get comfortable i always like to listen to the radio i tell young guys turn the radio on have some music calm down mm-hmm. and 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 just uh just use some common sense so what happens if you're uh you're following somebody and they decide to go to say a mall or maybe a maybe a ball game. What if they're going to a ball game? Then what do you do? Right. You know, back in kind of the olden times when I started, we kind of never got out of our our surveillance van. We just followed somebody to a Walmart and whatever. Hopefully, at a ball game, maybe you can still sit in your van. But say they say they're going to a a race car rally or a, or into a basketball game or into a Walmart. Now people nowadays. You have to be able to go in and do some covert surveillance on them in the inside to see what their activity level is um, and document that activity best you can. So um, we hop out of our vehicle, we have our little covert hidden cameras, and we, we go inside these public outings or places of business and try to obtain video of you know people, hey, they're there buying two-by-fours at the, at the hardware store. you know. Um, mm-hmm. So you want to try to document that. Um, um, or maybe they're buying a horse saddle. Okay, well, so maybe they're involved in horse riding. So this stuff does happen all the time. So you have to be prepared and have the skill to do that. It's, and it just takes time, and it doesn't always work out well. And you may have to fall into more than one place one day, so you may have to kind of dis- disguise yourself each time so they don't see the same <laughs> the same guy right. showing up at every every place that but they are. And then again, back to the people that are working, you might have to go in and film a guy who's on workers' comp but working as a bartender or a a painter or whatever, and uh, right. go inside a place and get the video. Very interesting. So, you know, uh, in more metropolitan areas, you have, uh, like California, we have the BART system, uh, Metro in Washington, D.C. So what do you what do you do if you they go park at a train station and get on a train? Do you get off and get on the train too? You, you get off and get on the train with them. Um, 
and and follow them as you can. A lot of times you have your little go bag that has your kind of a, your stuff if you need to to go, and then so you have your you grab that and you're, you're off and running. And so that's why being prepared is is very important. I mean, I've had people who they in the morning took off and I followed them 400 miles to another state, and and you're like, okay, I didn't start out the day thinking this was going to happen, but you call your client in route and they said, yes, yeah, stay on them, and and that can happen as well. And so you just have to be prepared. And then do you, in that case, do you have a backup person that can come and pick you up at the other end if you need them to? <laughs> what never, happens then? It never happens that way, you know, I'm sure, with big agencies, you know. But uh, even big agencies, you know, they you know, they don't have people everywhere. So a lot of times you're just really on your own on many of these things. And, and uh, it's, just, it's just the way it is. And so you just, you've got to get the job done. So, uh, Steve, you mentioned uh, going into other states. That means you have to be licensed in every state you go into? Right. Well, any state that has licensing, if you're going to do surveillance and you think you're going to have to testify in court, you better be licensed in that state. And yeah. so uh, that's that's the kind of idea. You know, we, uh, I've been licensed in Iowa and Kansas and, and stuff like that. Colorado, of course, didn't have licensing back then, and, you know, Wyoming and South Dakota, so I didn't really have to worry about some of them. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, you better, if you're going to have to testify to a case, you better be licensed in that state. Yeah, and some, uh, and some states have very strong licensing laws. So if they, like Nevada, for example, um, if you get caught in Nevada uh, working as a private investigator, you could be in deep trouble. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, um, so if you have to cross the state line, do you get permission from your you know, client first, or do you just do it? Well, usually, you know, if you've got a guy or a gal or you're following them and they, you think it's going to take you across, whatever, you get approval to say, okay, if you, you care if I follow this guy to Texas or whatever, you know, um, mm-hmm. because he's on the move. And uh, they'll either say, well, yeah, it's worth it for you or not. And then so you get approval from your client. And then if you hopefully you are licensed in those states, and most people are. And, you know, people are kind of used in this business know that, that there's a chance. And usually a lot of times they work in a broad area, you know, and so they're already licensed because they know they might get a case in Kansas or Iowa or Colorado or what. So they they they've got that taken care of in advance. So it's usually, if you're kind of in this business, it's usually not an issue. Right. Okay. You know, um, you mentioned um, you mentioned safety and and uh, you know doing doing things according to the law. And you do hear periodically about somebody saying they burned a red light uh, to keep on the claimant or or whatever. What would you say about that? Right. Yeah. That safety is number. You know, no case again is worth you getting hurt, you hurting somebody else, or whatever. And uh, there are times when you're going to have to, you know, probably do that. Um, but it's it's just it's just this is not. We're not chasing terrorists here. You know, let's just right. keep it in, keep it keep the case in the context and and be safe. And it is just paramount. It is just not worth it. And so. Um, but sometimes you have to kind of, you know, take a chance here or there, but uh, nothing beyond what you should risk yourself or somebody else doing. And we've been talking about workers' comp kinds of fraud. What other kinds of surveillance have you done? What are the kinds Absolutely. of cases? Um, of course, now one of the things is FMLA surveillances or the Family Medical Leave Act. That's people uh-huh. who are off, you know, save for a sick family member. Well, I've had those cases, and usually what you do there is you go watch them during that time frame when they would normally be at work and are they actually doing that and then you, you film people i've had film people who were paint video of people who were not really doing home taking care of someone they were off playing 
um, also on uh, child custody cases is important, certainly very important, because um, uh-huh. uh, sometimes the uh, custodial parent isn't always living a, a very uh, safe life for the child and have uh-huh. obtained video of people doing all kinds of things on those kind of cases. And then certainly there's corporate cases um, where people do for non-competes or due diligence type work and uh, also media cases as well. Yeah, there's all kinds of reasons, you know, even just maybe serving a subpoena. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so there's all kinds of reasons um, uh, to do it, and it's just another, it's a tool, you know, that the investigators have to have in their toolbox, and it's just a skill you have, and, and you never know when you might need to use it. Yeah. So let's go back and summarize what you recommend not to do for surveillance operative. Okay, again, you know, there's... It's a good faith investigation. You want to do an honest and an honest and uh, and uh, good faith investigation because you don't want to make your clients make your clients look bad. Um, and so it's not worth it to. You know, back in the days, you heard stories where people would flatten a car tire so they could film somebody changing their tire. That is just absolutely frowned upon. As a matter of fact, I I almost hope I don't get somebody changing a tire because they're going to say I did it. But. Right. Uh, um, but again, following those rules for expectation of privacy, uh, not trespassing, not contacting the claimant if they're represented. Um, you know, if you get, say you get burned on a, and they, you, you get made on a surveillance, you know, terminate the surveillance immediately. Don't continue to follow them or harass them in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, do not uh, infer that the, the claimant is committing fraud, even if you think they are. Never okay. infer that to somebody else. Don't even make that comment, oh, that... Uh, I'm sitting in your driveway so I can film your claimant to your neighbor who's committing fraud. You, I mean, you don't say things like that. Yeah, right. Um, you don't ever even infer it to anybody or medical information. Um, and you know, just let your res- your results kind of speak for themselves, and let the claims adjusters and the the attorneys, you know, do their jobs. And uh, you don't follow people into a medical appointment. <laughs> right. I don't. You know, I probably have followed many people to medical appointments, but you don't follow them into places where they're having a private medical appointment or meeting with their right. attorney or something like that, where it could be like you're <laughs> too close to private business, you know, things yeah. like that. So yeah. even churches are, are suspect places to follow people into. Well, you know, uh, I, and I think uh, probably nobody thinks about that you even though you're doing all this surveillance, that you actually have to write a report about what you're doing. So... Uh, you mentioned taking notes. You have to keep good no- good notes because you're going to have to report to somebody exactly what happens, and that usually means a written report, right? Absolutely. And as you well know, as you've written millions of them yourself, um, you have to be able to put together a very and, – and it has to be courtroom ready when it goes out. Yeah. Basically, you know, you put together your report. I'm a big thing for having the summary on my front page of what happened. Um, and in that report, you might have snippets of video that you uh, took throughout to kind of give them a flavor for what you saw. But it's very important to write, write a very professional, clean report and to have those skills. And, uh, and so um, otherwise you're going to come across as, you know, looking very unprofessional. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that is, that, is, that is a skill that takes some time, but it's something that I, I think it's one of the last things they ask investigators <laughs> when they're hiring them in a sector. I know. Should be, should be one of the first. It should be, so and you know, you write a sentence? I, I always tell people your your report uh, may be read by a judge. 
it Absolutely. may for some reason go up to the Supreme Court. Who knows? Absolutely. So, and, just, and just like ours, in a case, it might be read by, say, it's going to be read by your attorney, the adjuster, the yeah. claimant's attorney, the claimant, yep. the work comp judge, and, uh, yep. a third-party administrator. It's going to be read by somebody at the plant who you're working for. It's going to be read by several people. Exactly. And so that report needs to cover questions that all those people might have. Steve, this is great. You've provided such valuable information. We're at the end of our hour. Thank you so much. Um, I, real quickly, though, I want to. Uh, I, I just want to tell everybody about this conference that's being. It's a forensic conference that's being held in Santa Barbara. Uh, let's see, August sixth through the eighth. Uh, if you are interested in it, it's all kinds of forensic stuff. Really, really good. Close range photogrammetry, uh, digital stuff audio, authenticity, all kinds of interesting stuff. So if you are interested, it's called the Digital Forensic Summit, and the advanced registration can be made on or before 6-1. Um, so if you're interested in that, uh, send me an email, francie.koehler at gmail.com, and I will send you the appropriate information. Uh, this is a good conference, guys. You shouldn't miss it. Uh, even if you don't do forensics, you learn a lot. So we're, we're through. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're, again, we're at the end of our hour. Tune in again next week as we declassify more stories from real investigators like Steve Caning. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time here on the Voice America Variety Channel.